trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join our growing crowd of wrong thinkers today. And can I invite you? Please consider taking the next step. And that is subscribe to the podcast of The Brian Hyde Show. You can go to thebrianhydeshow.com. There's an there's a handy little button. In fact, I make it easy enough. I put it in the show notes. Every day when I do the show, I publish show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. The show notes at the very bottom you'll see where you can subscribe to the podcast as well as if if you choose, if you want to continue to support this program, consider throwing a few shekels my way. You can become a supporter, become a wrong thinker. There are some things, there's content that is available to our, our wrong thinker patrons that uh, is, is unique and not available to just the general public. In other words, uh, videos that, uh, that we produce, um, e-books that we're publishing that uh, are available to you by virtue of your membership as a wrong thinker. Plus, it just feels good to challenge the narrative. It really does. Speaking of which... <laughs> I uh, I mentioned in the other hour of my show, uh, Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education, and she is just knocking it out of the park this week. There's another article of hers I wanted to share. This was published earlier today. And I know you've heard some rumblings about dueling ideologies, right, among the, the students and among the, um, the, the schools. So if, if if Joe Biden is talking about, well, you know what we really need? We need a 1619 commission to make sure the kids understand the real history, the dark history of America. And they're already kind of getting this to some extent. Most of uh, what passes for American history is usually pretty well sorted out to, to favor whatever the, the prevailing you know political opinions are of today. And I don't know if you've noticed, but with people rioting in the streets and burning things down and tearing down monuments and, you know, doing everything they can to erase the past, um, it's not exactly a favorable view. They can only focus, and I mean hyper-focus, on the negative parts without seeing the good. And by the way, that's not just the left-wingers. It happens on the right-wing as well. But if you would have problems, for instance, with Biden uh, mandating, let's say he gets elected president and he mandates, you know, in every school, we need a 1619 commission to make sure the kids are taught how America was founded on slavery and white supremacy. Because that's the premise of the 1619 project. I think most people would say, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. I don't want the kids being taught that. However, the very same people who would likely stand up in opposition to uh, a Biden-imposed 1619 commission would very likely welcome, maybe with cheering and loud uh, you know, applause, President Trump creating a 1776 commission. Since he just floated this idea, I can tell you right now, there are people who are like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. We should be teaching kids patriotic things. And I want to make something here before clear, before I share Kerry McDonald's article, teaching kids patriotism, I don't think is a, is a bad thing. But the way we go about teaching it and the delivery vehicle by which it is taught, you want to think about that pretty carefully. 
because if you are leaning on a government run institution and i'm looking at the public school system as the delivery vehicle for this is what the kids are going to be taught to think about their citizenship in this country you are setting yourself up for well indoctrination yes it may start off with what we were teaching them patriotic things to love you know their founding fathers and the flag and all this but it won't always be the same people in control is not a government function in the first place. And this is something that Carrie McDonald makes very, very clear in her piece. If you don't want a Biden 1619 commission, you should oppose Trump's 1776 commission. Her point being that truly patriotic education can only be achieved in a constitutional and therefore patriotic manner, meaning the government isn't supposed to be running the schools in the first place. So, you know, quit hacking at the leaves Take a swipe at the root of the problem instead. Carrie McDonald points out yesterday was Constitution Day, when Americans honor the moment when delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed this extraordinary document in Philadelphia in 1787. Now, sadly, re- recent University of Pennsylvania civic surveys revealed that 37% of, US Amer- of American adults rather cannot name one right protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Only 39% can name the three branches of government. And additionally, there have been recent concerns about national division and a perceived abandonment of our shared history and underlying philosophy, including debate over the widespread adoption of the New York Times' flawed 1619 project in classrooms throughout the country. Now, she says it's understandable for us to be concerned about a crisis in civics education. Often a proposed solution to this concern is just add more force to the mix. You make kids learn about history and government or else. Use my preferred curriculum, my worldview. And again, this is not just a problem of the left. The right struggles with this as well. The debates that frequently rage in education revolve around whose curriculum, whose worldview should be imposed, paid for, of course, by the taxpayers. Now, to commemorate Constitution Day yesterday, President Donald Trump gave an impassioned speech at the National Archives Museum in Washington, D.C., emphasizing a renewed dedication to our country's founding principles. I've only heard excerpts of this speech, by the way. Um, it sounded good. I Look, I, I know that to, to, to give him praise is, is going to risk, you know, people saying, well, ah, you're just a Trumpster. I'm not a Trump fanboy, but I do appreciate when he speaks the language of liberty. And like most politicians, his actions don't always match up. But, the, you know, his remarks on the 3rd of July, given at Mount Rushmore, I thought were incredible. Some of the best presidential speechifying I've heard in a long time, possibly in, in a generation or more. And some of the remarks he made commemorating Constitution Day, I thought, again, were very refreshing to hear. They didn't sound just like platitudes or playing to his base. Maybe he was. I don't know. But there was a ring of truth to what he was saying, regardless of whether he was trying to say it for political advantage. What he was speaking measured with the truth, as near as I could tell. And as Kerry McDonald points out, the president, in trying to inspire respect for the Constitution, may have inadvertently compromised it. in in that he called for a national commitment to patriotic education and proclaimed that he would sign an executive order to create the 1776 commission that would ensure this patriotic education gets promulgated in schools throughout the country. 
And she says this may sound like a positive initiative, an effort to bring together a fractured country and remind us all of American exceptionalism. But especially on Constitution Day, it's important to remember that there is no constitutional role for the federal government in education. This is why principles matter more than power, more than party. Kerry McDonald says if this administration uses the unjust powers of the federal government to push patriotic education in schools, then another administration could use these same expanded powers to push critical theory education or any other vision of what U.S. schools should be, a, be required to teach. This would further weaken local control of schooling and have widespread implications for American education in all its forms. She says emboldening the federal government to execute education, execute rather education policy may seem appealing when your preferred politician or party is in power. But she reminds us that power remains when leadership inevitably sways to another politician or party. So if you wouldn't support a Biden 1619 commission, then you shouldn't support Trump's 1776 commission. If you wouldn't support mandatory critical race theory taught in your local schools, then you shouldn't support mandatory patriotic education either. Look, the founding fathers understood this. Curry McDonald writes, they, they recognize the tendency in human nature toward controlling others, pushing our will upon them. And in framing the Constitution, they intentionally limited the powers of the federal government to certain enumerated functions while allowing the states more autonomy and discretion. As James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, number 45, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. Education is not mentioned anywhere in the U.S. Constitution and is not one of the enumerated powers of the federal government. Indeed, the U.S. Department of Education has been unconstitutional since its creation in 1979. And she says it continues to assume more influence in American education from overseeing the No Child Left Behind Act and Every Student Succeeds Act to setting expectations for curriculum frameworks, standardized testing, and accountability. Now, there's more to this article. I'm going to come back to it in a few moments. Tell me what you think. 801-331-8113. I think she makes sense, but uh, that doesn't mean you have to think that. Call me up. Let's talk about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. I am in the middle of sharing an article with you from Carrie McDonald, marvelous education writer. And this is a piece published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Please go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out for yourself. If you don't want a Biden 1619 commission being taught to kids in school, you really should oppose Trump's 1776 commission that he proposed yesterday while commemorating Constitution Day. Let's go to the phone. Ray is standing by. What's what's your take on this, Ray? Well, thank you for taking my call, Brian. I appreciate it. And uh, as always, you have the uh, number one most unique show 
in the world. And, um, uh, you know, especially for us wrong thinkers. <laughs> and, um, You're very kind. You know, I, <laughs> I think what it comes down to is we have to abolish the school system. And people have to go back to just home and town teaching, local control. I, I mean, um, you know, the, the lawyers, the lawsuits, the, the books. I mean, I've been trying to retire for four years, and I just can't get there. But, you know, us baby boomers, we've got to um, get involved in the school system and and get local control back. And, and I, I'm fine if the Baptists teach their form of history, you know, um, with their spin on it, and the Catholics, you know, down south, and the Catholics up in New York, and I, I'm for local control, you know, and then um, I think that's the only solution between all these lawsuits, and then um, the crazy things is being taught our kids, that it's really messing them up. I mean, you know, what, what right-thinking kid would be out there rioting? I mean... Come on, that, you know you, we have to build a life in America. You you can build a life like nowhere else in the world. You can build a life, and we're out there building a life, you know. But a life isn't supposed to be handed to you. I mean, where in in Mother Nature, God, you know, uh, is um, you know a life handed to you other than going out there and working and building a life. Yeah, I seem to remember the words uh, by the sweat of your brow being uttered there at one go. time. <laughs> I don't think that was ever rescinded, but uh, hey, some people act like it was. By the way, I think you're spot on about the idea, make it local. Um, I don't know that the school system has to go away, but a government-run school system could certainly go away. And and if it, if it's a school system that is close to the people, the community, and gives people real choice, you know, as the free market does, that would be a much better solution. Some parents, by the way, might, may want their kids indoctrinated with 1619 dogma. And others may say, no, 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 I want nothing but red, white, and blue stuff taught to my kids. They would have that choice. Exactly. Yes. I'm with you, Brian. Okay. Thanks so much for the call. Great to hear from you. 801 8113 uh, by the way, Carrie McDonald agrees with both Ray and me on this. She says there are responsibilities. These are responsibilities better left to the states. Just as the Constitution says, the Tenth Amendment reminds us that any powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. She also points out that one of the primary causes of Americans' increasingly divisive political conflicts is that the federal government has gotten too big. It has amassed more powers than the Constitution allows. It wields unprecedented control, unprecedented control over the lives of American citizens. And each national election feels overwhelmingly consequential because it is. Whoever wins gets to push their agenda and ideology onto the states and the people in exactly the way that the founders feared. Just imagine where this could lead. She says, if the federal government continues to con expand control over state and local education, the national elections could result in a whiplash of policies that are added or removed every four to eight years. So your kindergartner might learn one nationally prescribed worldview that changes entirely by the time she's in middle school. 
Now, one could argue that although it shouldn't be, the federal government is currently entangled in education policy, and therefore its attempts to uh, to influence teaching and learning are justified. But a key objective for the federal government should be to minimize its role in education and push policies to the states. For example, Trump was right to reinforce the need for school choice in yesterday's speech. But these school choice policies should be enacted at the state level without interference from politicians in Washington, D.C. State-level school choices make it possible for families to vote with their feet, choosing states with their preferred public school curriculum or with greater access to other education options. That's one of the great virtues of America's federal structure, as enshrined in the Constitution. On the other hand, a nationwide curriculum or educational approach would trap American families and erode freedom and choice. She says if the federal government shrank to its intended size, concentrating only on its constitutionally enumerated powers, national elections wouldn't be so fraught. The federal government would have no control over education and no authority to create coercive commissions that tell citizens what to believe. Power would be rightfully dispersed to all the states with 50 different approaches to education and other social policies. There would be no federal 1776 commission and no nationally imposed patriotic education, just as there could be no 1619 commission and no nationally imposed critical theory education. The Constitution would then be preserved and honored as the founding as the founders intended. And again, she drives home truly patriotic education can only be achieved in a constitutional and therefore patriotic manner. Now, I'm going to say something that's probably unpopular, but it needs to be said. If it's important to you that your kids or your grandkids be taught patriotic knowledge, that's more than likely going to fall to you. And I'm not saying you got to sit them down and, you know, sign them up for the John Birch Society and you know make sure they attend every meeting. I'm talking about uh, more. You have to be willing to show them by the power of example that there are great books to be read, that your best understanding of history comes from going to original sources and especially looking to sources that were written at the time in question that you're studying. Now, it doesn't mean all that information is going to be right, but at least you're going to have an insight into the mindset or the prevailing mindset of the person who actually lived and walked and breathed in those times. Yeah, it takes work. And what's more is (laughs) it sets the stage for being a lifelong learner. But this is where we separate those people for whom, you know, living as a free man or free woman is more important to them than simply being comfortable, than simply having that uh, luxury of doing, you know, whatever, you know, they want and having somebody else spoon feed to them. This is what it all means. Here's what you are for. Here's your purpose. Because that's ultimately what happens. So you probably you probably fall pretty strongly to one side or the other on this. I'm guessing you fall to the yes, I want my autonomy. I want to live as a free man or woman. Well, if you want that for the people who will follow in your footsteps, you've got to be willing to show them by example that you want it. And it's very powerful when, when your kids see you reading books I don't know if, if, if we just underestimate or, or we just don't do it often enough to get to see it at work. But when kids see you reading good books, they notice. 
I think one of the greatest compliments I've ever been paid in my life. I was uh, I was on a speaking engagement in Southern California a few years back, and uh, one of the homes where we went after the the speaking event, we were we were having kind of a get together, a little dinner party, and I found uh, Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, and I was like, oh, I want to read that book, and so I sat down, just kind of separated myself away from the crowd and the socializing, started reading, and the folks who I was staying with, their son saw me reading the book, and he was very intent on what was happening with that book. I mean, he was like looking at it going, hey, uh, you really seem like you, you enjoy this a lot. And I did. And I told him, well, um, you know, I'm going to read this whole thing tonight if I have the opportunity. He was so impressed he actually stole the book. I don't recommend it, but I was quite flattered. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, phones are open at 801-331-8113. Want to mention the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have them as a sponsor of the program, and I hope that you will consider doing business with them. Should you find yourself in need of, I don't know, pre-qualifying for a home loan, maybe you want to refinance your existing home loan, or maybe you are shopping for a new home. I really hope it's the latter one, just because that is the most fun of all. (laughs) It's so cool. And my friend John Staples and his lovely wife Heather can help you because they are working with Patriot Home Mortgage, which started in little old St. George, Utah, and now has offices operating in 23 different states. They've got clout. They've got experience, know-how. But most importantly, John is one of the hardest-working, most ethical people that I know. When it comes to something really big, like this is the biggest purchase you're likely to make in your life, it's one thing you want to get right. You want to make sure all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. John is your guy. Go to staplesmortgage.com. Again, staplesmortgage.com. Check them out. Get in touch with them. If you end up doing business with them, please tell them, hey, we came because Brian was talking about you. All right, let's talk about COVID. I know, again, but the question that has been on my mind, only because I've heard rumors, oh, there might be more lockdowns coming. There might have to be a bigger crackdown. And I'm, I'm one of those people, I was about to say, I'm one of those idiots, maybe it's true, who says, uh, over my dead body, I'm tired of this. I refuse to live in fear. I'm not going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to tell you that you can't live in fear if you choose to. Can I share an an example of this, though? Um, I work a a part-time gig. I work a side gig. And uh, it brings me in touch with a lot of people in the public. And I mean a lot, as in a couple hundred customers in the course of a shift. And I had two ladies come into the establishment where I work yesterday. Now, the establishment where I work says masks, you know, requested or masks required. It's not an enforced thing. Okay, so if you walk in there, nobody's going to, hey, you need to be putting on a mask. But you see people come in and they see the sign and they go, oh, oh, wow, I don't have my mask. 
And this one sweet lady with a, with a very, very thick Spanish accent, um, I could see her, you know, first of all, she apologized right at the door. I'm so sorry. And she has her hand over her mouth. I'm so sorry. I don't have my mask. And I told her what I tell anybody who apologizes. I'm like, don't worry about it. Now, that seems flippant to you. Well, gee, Brian, you're not enforcing these things. My job is not to be a mask enforcer. So I'm not going to take on duties that really aren't mine. But most of all, I just want to put them at ease. You know, I would guess of the people who come in and out of there, roughly 50% wear a mask, maybe somewhat less. They're usually not there for long term. So, they, they, you know, it's in and out. They're, they're not worried about masking up. But she went about, did her thing. She came to me. I was ringing up her purchase for her. And, and again, she had her hand over her mouth. And, and, I, and I just, I leaned up to the barrier between us and just told her, it's okay. You know, no, no one is going to get after you. And the look of relief on her face, she took her hand away. She smiled and just said, thank you. Thank you so much. Now, I don't know if she has been on the receiving end of, you know, ridicule or, you know, someone has gotten in her face. Where's her mask? Where's the mask? You know, because it, it depends. Some people take it very, very seriously. Maybe I'm wrong for not taking it so seriously. But it, it brightened my heart to see the relief on her face and just the sense of I'm not causing a problem here. I'm not the, the issue. Now, I want to contrast that with a woman who showed up just a just a short time later, maybe an hour later. And as she came up to pay for her purchase and I went to ring her up, same thing. She said, I'm so sorry. I don't have a mask. And she's kind of covering her, her hands or her hand over her mouth. But you could see she was distraught. She was distraught. And, and, and I told her, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And instead of relaxing, instead of, you know, smiling and saying, oh, thank you. She put her hands even more tightly to her face and, and literally went <gasps> terrified. I really hope what I'm about to say here doesn't sound like I'm judging you if you wear a mask. Could we at least agree, though, that that woman's mental state is not a healthy one? And I don't know what other complicating factors she has in her life. I don't know, you know, I don't know what will cause her to fear at that level. But it's deeply concerning to me. And so the question that's been on my mind is, how far is this sickness, psychosis, going to spread? I'm not judging the people who are afraid. We all have things that we're afraid of. We all have things that, that put us on edge. But I'm tired of seeing it being done to people who I don't believe have any good reason to fear. And if they really have that fear, I mean, look, if, if their health is compromised, maybe they're on chemotherapy or something like that, they need to be letting someone else do their shopping for them. They need to, they need to be isolating and keeping themselves away from the public generally. Anyway, I hope it comes through. I don't despise that poor woman. I feel sincerely bad for her. And at the same time, I feel kind of angry for the, the pressure that has bro been brought to bear on her that would cause her to react so fearfully to the fact that she forgot to wear her mask or she didn't have her mask with her. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. 
Hello there. I didn't. Go I ahead. didn't hear a squeak. You won't, because I'm very stealthy. Well, maybe you just don't have the right phone. But anyway, no, I have the right phone. I just, I'm just very stealthy when I go to take your call. Bam! There you are. <laughs> What's well, on yeah, your mind? That, that throws everybody off because we're expecting a squeak. But anyway, Governor Hoover Herbert says he's. It's all still on the table. He's probably going to do a mandate, you know, mask mandate and all that. And, uh, you know, these masks don't stop viruses at all. It's just a joke. And then in Box Elder, the parents are revolting because all their kids are coming home, and I'm sure they're coming home everywhere with headaches. They said that our little kids, and especially the ones in elementary, they come home with headaches, and they can't do anything but go to bed. And they've taken them to the doctor, and the doctor just wrote them a, you know, uh what do you call it, a prescription for no masks. Hmm. But the governor, Hoover Herbert, says, I don't care. The masks are mandatory. He's not but a tyrant. And then over in England, the new vaccine they're trying to come up with, well, the guy came down when they gave him the shot. He he had an autoimmune reaction. He got uh, spinal meningitis. They kill him. They kind of hushed it up. They won't say anything more. Yeah. Uh, Okay, the phone call's breaking up here, so maybe I don't have the best phone. Squeak! I'll talk to you later. Um, I appreciate your take on that. I agree. Governor Herbert is overstepping his bounds. He is uh, he is writing checks that he does not have the authority to cash. And, and the bigger question is, for at least for my listeners in Utah, what are you going to do about it? I, I seriously doubt that most of them are thinking, well, we riot in the streets and we burn this place down and we overturn police cars, rah, rah, rah. I think we just peacefully refuse to comply. And I know that's easier said than done because you're going to catch pushback. There are people who are true believers, and I'm not just talking wild, radical, you know, revolutionaries. Respectable people who think, no, 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 we have to do this. People whose official positions depend upon them towing the line. So like it or not, you and I have landed in a place where if you are serious about living as a free individual, if you are serious about exerting your natural rights, you're going to have to suffer for it. Or you're going to have to risk being seen as out of step with the rest of society. And it is an uncomfortable place to be. I wish it weren't so. Look, I wish it didn't hurt, but it does. And yet it's essential that people stand up and do it. When we come back, I'm going to share a couple of examples with you of just how far this this crazy thinking is going. Uh, There's a story of an online student at NYU attended a rooftop party. By the way, he didn't live on campus. He actually lived uh, in an entirely different apartment building. But someone did a Facebook Live video or some other social media video, and uh, the university figured out, hey, that's one of our students, and suspended him indefinitely after cashing his tuition checks, of course. Why would they suspend him? Well, they said, uh, you know, he uh, he violated our COVID-19 guidelines. Now, the party he was attending was actually in compliance with New York City's Phase 4 COVID-19 guidelines, which allow events of up to 50 people. But apparently NYU administrators say ours are much stricter, and they accused him of threatening the health and safety of the NYU community. And so they suspended him indefinitely. 
That, my friend, is what sickness psychosis leads to. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, it's true. NYU suspended indefinitely an online student. He wasn't even on campus. He wasn't even attending class at their university. But uh, someone noticed him in a video from a rooftop party that he was attending, which, by the way, was in accordance with New York City's guidelines. No more than 50 people. And they suspended him. <laughs> it's it's nuts. And here's the here's the kicker. The student will call him Andy, says he didn't stand in close proximity to anyone other than his classmates who are also students. And they left after a while. Everybody or many of the attendees rather were maskless. But after his video was reported or the video of him, I should say. He didn't even take the video. After it was reported to NYU administrators via the uh, university's rat-your-friends-out system, I'm sorry, COVID-19 compliance system, NYU Director of Student Conduct Craig Jolly sent an email to Andy accusing him of, quote, threatening the health and safety of the NYU community. By 5 o'clock the next day, they had suspended him indefinitely. Here's what he needed to do. If he wants to return to campus next year, he will need to write a reflection paper and beg for readmission. Ah, a little struggle session. Excellent. Resuming his education might be impossible, though, the article says, because he relies on a full tuition scholarship that's now threatened by his disciplinary status. Now, not surprisingly, Andy thinks that NYU treated him unfairly. Robbie Suave points out that's uh, it's hard to disagree. More importantly, he didn't actually put anyone on campus in danger because he had no plans to set foot on NYU property. He lives off campus. His classes were all online. So in an appeal of the decision, he said, I am not a student who will be staying at or near NYU housing, nor will I be entering campus grounds or NYU buildings, as I'm currently enrolled in all online courses. And his appeal was rejected. Obviously, this virus is more of a disaster than simply what it's doing to primarily old people. The challenges, according to this article, are very daunting. I just wonder how long it's going to be before this comes back to bite higher education right in the tail. As Robbie Suave points out, many other universities perhaps realizing that students will balk at paying full tuition for a series of glorified online tutorials have attempted to reopen in various stages and forms, but these reopenings were accompanied by tough restrictions on student social gatherings in dormitories, off-campus housing, and elsewhere. Don't you act like young people. You stay away from each other, and you be fearful the whole time. Where's the common sense? And by the way, if you ask yourself, how bad can it get? Because this is pretty bad. I mean, his, his educational future just got derailed big time. How bad can it get? Well, take a little look down under, mate, and you will see that uh, what's going on in Australia is probably 
the best it's, it's the best mirror of what it what it could look like elsewhere. Zero Hedge, by the way, is reporting authorities down under are now pushing for ways to punish wrong thinkers who simply post on social media in disagreement with the officially approved narrative. No, they're literally arresting people for posting dissenting points of view. We should stand up to this. We shouldn't have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Yep, you do that. You run the risk of, you know, getting smacked down hard. I don't think we realize, you and I, I don't think we realize how much control we actually have over the situation. And at the risk of sounding like a revolutionary, there is some strength in numbers here. If enough people say, no, I'm not going to do it, they can't arrest or fine or punish everybody. It's just not possible. I don't know where your line in the sand is, but I'd like to make a suggestion. Maybe we can revisit this at a later point. Maybe you can tell me, Brian, you were just as wrong as can be. I hope I am. I really do. But I think each one of us is going to have to draw that line in the sand. Figure it out now. If you wait until the the moment of pass or play is forced on you, you won't make as good a decision as you can right now while there's no pressure being brought to bear. How far would you allow yourself to be pushed? And I apologize if what I'm about to say sounds like, you know, so much hyperbole. Six months ago, actually seven or eight months ago, a year ago, this would have sounded incredible. It would have sounded absolutely unbelievable. But I think we are seeing a kind of medical tyranny or medical-based tyranny form around us. And these cries like Nancy Pelosi, if you heard in the news uh, at, the, at the bottom of the hour, um, you know, talking about, well, the reason we got to get Donald Trump out of here is because he doesn't believe in the science. Yeah, what science is that? <laughs> the the pseudoscience or the, the science mingled with authority that says these experts are telling you to do everything that I, this political figure, am telling you to do. You should listen to the experts. I got another idea. It's not as easy, but it's ultimately worth it. And that is, why don't you learn how to think like an expert? Weigh things out. Ask questions. Disagree, if need be. Know who you are. Know what you stand for. Be willing to dig. Do your own research. Seek out the best information sources. Study a bunch of different sources. What things do they disagree on? What things do do they agree on? This is the kind of stuff you have to be willing to do to own your own worldview. And no, you don't have to be, you know, a a virologist or, you know, an epidemic specialist or anything like that. You should be asking questions like, is this an appropriate thing for government? to be doing and if the answer is no i don't care what the epidemiologist is saying i don't care what their pet expert who's getting a big fat government check is telling me to do if it is against my best interest or against my kids best interest or my family's best interests i'm not going to willingly go along with it here's my prediction 
I think we are going to be forced into a situation where a lot more of us are really going to be up against the wall being told you either comply or else. And I got to thank my friend Eric Mutzos for, <laughs> for, for having the courage to break the ice clear back in, when was it, April? I can't remember when the first uh, um, Utah Business Revival protest took place at the city county building in Salt Lake City. But I remember very well my thoughts when Eric called me up and said, hey, we're going to be doing this. You want to come? And I was like, you bet. Who am I to, you know, miss out on a chance to stand with lovers of freedom? And he said, are you ready to be arrested? And I went, whoa, (laughs) let me think about this for just a minute. I know that's a tough decision, right? That's a conversation I had to go have with my wife. Hey, uh, I'm thinking this is what I want to do. And in my heart, yes, I am ready to be arrested if that's what it takes. If, if we have reached the point where society will treat me like a criminal simply for freely walking about in public, guess I better be a criminal. Maybe it's time for, for other people to be a criminal. You understand, of course, I'm not talking about victimizing other people. I'm just talking about peacefully living your life without permission from this governor or that health official. The sooner you come to an understanding of where your line in the sand is and the sooner you make your mind up of this is the line that uh, that I absolutely will not allow them to cross, the more peace you're going to have in your soul. It doesn't mean you're going to be violent and you're going to go fight people over it. It just means you know where you stand. And here's the kicker. It's still going to be scary and it's still going to suck when people are looking at you and they're 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 casting, you know, their aspersions on you and then questioning every motive about what you're doing. You are just an attention whore and that's why you do this. But somewhere, perhaps just out of sight, hidden by the thoughtless crowd. There is a truth seeker. There's a member of that remnant that Albert J. Nock wrote about in his essay, Isaiah's Job. There's someone who loves and values truth and freedom and their freedom of conscience and the the value of the free market more than they value being approved by the crowd. And your suffering may be what gives them courage to likewise make a stand. Pretty lofty stuff, I know. But that is what we need, and we need more of it. Stat. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 